All right, friends, good to have you back aboard another episode of White Collar Crimes. I'm Ryan Horn, the host, the show where we show you the only color that truly matters in our criminal justice system is green. Coming to you not feeling so well, though, folks, uh, be careful out there. I'm not sure what's going on. I've had a couple of COVID tests, and thankfully it was not COVID, but uh, they don't know, but it was a very vicious stomach virus, maybe, uh, you know, tests showed no E. coli or salmonella poisoning, anything like that. So uh, be careful out there, folks. It's uh, It sucks the life right out of you. And I come to you for this one, Not certainly not 100%, but uh, glad to be here. Um, going to talk about in this one about Charles Ponzi. Uh, you all hear about Ponzi schemes. You are all very well probably of pretty much what a Ponzi scheme is. But do you really know how that name came about and... The story behind the man who brought that about. Um, you've probably heard it several times. I know we've done shows on, you know, uh, Bernie Madoff and other ones, countless different episodes, you know, that are out there that show how the Ponzi scheme is involved in a huge amount of white collar crime. Well, Charles Ponzi goes back quite a ways, even though I don't think he's probably the one that truly invented this type of fraud or system, but he certainly brought it down to a science or an art. But uh, Charles Ponzi was born all the way back in 1882 in Italy, and he grew up there, you know, later on went to college, um, hung around with some of his rich friends. They were a bad influence on him. He largely ignored his studies and responsibilities and uh, ended up not getting a degree, graduating and ending up being broke. Uh, So not, not a good early start for him. So uh, with persuasion from his family, he decided to come to the U.S. and try his fortunes. He landed in Boston in 1903, you know, a young man, basically penniless, you know, about 22 years old here. He did learn English, picked it up pretty quickly, like, you know, a lot of immigrants did back then, actually, self-taught. And he managed to keep afloat and survive on doing a series of menial labor jobs and, you know, whatever he could find doing, waiter, dishwashing, things like that. Uh, It was reported he had a job at one restaurant and had worked his way up to a waiter and was making pretty good money, but he was later fired for shortchanging a customer. So early on, here's a warning sign. You know, he's got some uh, born-in con skills. So he settles back up in Canada for a while and did manage to get a job at a bank. And the owner of the bank at that time was doing something pretty similar to what would be a Ponzi scheme there. So like I said, again, he's really certainly, I think, not the first one as long as we've had fraud in the world. I certainly don't think Charles Ponzi's the one that, you know, just out and out and invented this crime. But, you know, he certainly, uh, you know, he certainly made it an art form. But uh, he was, the bank guy was paying off bad investments with money deposited from new accounts, um, you know, robbing Peter to pay Paul, as they say. Well, Ponzi later wrote a bad check, and he ended up spending about three years in federal prison. Once he got out, uh, he did return to the U.S., but was caught smuggling Italian immigrants across the Canadian border into the U.S. So that cost him two more years in prison. So he does that time, and eventually he does get out. He returns to Boston, meets a young lady, gets married. Gets involved in a lot of, you know, different types of business ventures. Unfortunately for him, all of them failed. And he soon finds his niche is a scam involving what was known then as international reply coupons. And 
These allowed somebody in another country to be a correspondent in another country, and they could purchase the cost of a reply. And it was popular at this time. You know, from what I would read up on these, I was actually not real familiar with this, despite knowing about his story. But in preparation for this, found out this was popular at this time after World War II, or after World War One at this time, because it helped decrease the cost of postage. And you know, following war, it was devastating on a lot of people. And uh, you know, inflation had caused the postal prices to decrease. So some saw it as a good investment or a good bargain. And seeing the opportunity, Ponzi quit his job and he attempted to set up his own, as they know, called it an IRC company. And he could not get a legitimate bank to finance him. So he sets up basically his own stock company and, you know, he's raising money to the public, gets the public to pay for what's going to be his, uh, his scheme here. And I know you think, well, you know, how did he get away with doing this? And today, honestly, he probably wouldn't, you know, uh, but you got to keep in mind, this is a hundred years ago. They couldn't check criminal records and things as quickly as they can now. Uh, he wouldn't be able to be licensed, you know, to open a stock company now, being a convicted felon and serving time in prison. But back then, I'm not sure they had these type of regulations in place. And, you know, we are spoiled in this digital age we live in where you can find anything out about anybody in literally an instant. Well, back then, that just wasn't the case. This is over 100 years ago, and information did just not travel that quickly back then, and it was not easy to find things out about people, whether it was their criminal records or, you know, past financial dealings, uh, certifications, qualifications, and, you know, quite frankly, you know, those type of things didn't even exist back then. Uh, You know, you could do all kinds of professions that require licensing and, you know, training and certification and, and things of that sort today. Back then, that wasn't the case. You didn't need all that always back then to operate. And he was allowed just to set up shop and open up a stock company and, you know, open it up and get the public going on it. And he promised the people to double their investment in 90 days, which, you know, should be a red flag, should have been a red flag. I know, you know, any time you're promised something like that, always be wary because it very much could be some type of scam. Uh, But, you know... Again, people didn't have access to information and things like they do now, so the promise of a 90% you know, investment return is probably pretty good, you know, especially post-World War I. People coming back, they're struggling, they're wanting to find their niche. And he expanded his promise to a 45 days to get this back for people. Early investors, of course, were paid off earlier. He was able to you know, return them on their quick promise to double their investment very quickly. And this caused his business to grow so much that uh, he was able to hire agents to go out and who knows whether willingly or unwillingly go out and, you know, sell his scam for him. But uh, people were on a very short time getting uh, a very quick return on their investment. You know, if you popped $5,000 in an investment and 45 to 90 days later, you got back 10 grand. I mean, I think you'd be pretty excited and you know, would invest more, maybe tell close friends and family about it. Who knows? And that's probably exactly what happened here. People were on board and they were ready to uh, take part in what happened. You know, word of mouth traveled quickly and, you know, he paid his uh, his salesman very good commission. And it says by 1920, he collected about $2.5 million early on in this scheme, which from what I researched found that's equivalent to over $32 million now. 
So not too shabby for a guy who arrived in this country almost penniless, just, you know, a few short years earlier. People pretty soon to get in on this uh, hot ticket, they were mortgaging their homes, just anything they could to get cash and get in on the action. So he had no problem getting early investors on, which, you know, when you are, when you give back a quick return like this, a nice big quick return that quickly, most likely you will be able to, for a while, get people in. And that's what happened, obviously. You know, word traveled quickly, and, you know, a lot of people were wanting to get in and get involved and get on board, and he, uh, he did very well on that. So he got people involved, and people were investing, and early on, the early investors, as is the case in a Ponzi scheme, they were making a lot of money. But unfortunately, he needed new investors to keep going because, as I've talked about on other episodes, the way a Ponzi scheme works is, you know, you take the money in from the investors and, you know, you don't invest it, you keep it for yourself, but you satisfy the early investors by paying off the money from the new ones that are coming in. So as long as you have new ones coming in, you can satisfy the older ones for a while with payoffs from their investment as well. You know, if you can keep the fresh blood, the fresh money pouring in, rolling in, it's possible to keep it going. But eventually, as you'll find out here and in, in all the Ponzi schemes that have fallen apart before, uh, you know, people stop investing. They get worried. They start demanding their money. And then the orchestrator of the Ponzi scheme is unable to pay it. And, you know, this, the scheme collapses. But, you know, for a while, Ponzi lived, as they say, around here where I'm from, high on the hog. He, uh, pretty soon you had people mortgaging their homes to get in on the action, like I said, selling whatever they could to get the cash and get the capital to, to get involved. And unfortunately, just like we saw with Madoff and, and Jordan Belfort and a lot of the other really big time scam artists that we've talked about on this show and we've seen in American society over the years, Ponzi's victims weren't the wealthy and rich and powerful elites in this country. The overwhelming majority of them were just working class, middle class folks, and unfortunately, a lot of them immigrants just like himself. You know, this is a time not long after Ellis Island, a lot of people like him had come from Italy and other European countries to, you know, make their mark and and do well. And, you know, he took advantage of that. And uh, unfortunately, those were some of his victims. And he got rich off them and he lived a very lavish lifestyle, owned a very palatial estate mansion and you know anything he wanted he was living very well on which you know 32 million dollars will do that and you know as you'll see he did much better than that even after a while but pretty soon some things uh began to draw attention to him and people did become suspicious and you know rightfully so they're wondering how somebody that was penniless you know literally just almost no time at all you know no more than a few short years before that how he could become a millionaire literally overnight. And they began to question his investment skills, how he was able to do this so well compared to other people, you know, when a lot of other investments at the time were offering your standard 5 to 8% returns. And, you know, I'm not a financial whiz. I don't know what the rates are today. You know, the wife and I, like most people in the middle class, we invest a little here and there, but I couldn't tell you what's truly a great standard rate or anything like that but i know doubling money in 90 days on anything i'm gonna you know that's a red flag scam to me right there out of the gate but you know many people did finally start to see that how is this guy doing this so well how could he be penniless just a few years ago and then suddenly now is you know making money hand over fist not only for himself but 
for the other investors. So some of them actually started asking for their money back, which this is when the problem begins for the Ponzi scheme architect. When they don't have new investors that are going to be coming in, then their cash flow stops and they can't pay people when they do want their money because they haven't invested it. They've kept it for themselves. So that money's actually not there for that person that they invested in. So, you know, not only have they not made money off their investment, what they put into it's gone. It's been stolen. And the only way they would have ever been paid back is the money by somebody else. The new guy comes in, pays his money. You pay the old guy. Well, the new guy there thinks all this time his money's being invested in that, and it's not. And, you know, when he asks for his, fortunately, maybe there's another new guy coming behind him where you can pay that guy off. And you see it goes on and on and on. But like I said, when people stop, and that's what happened with Madoff and so many others of the classic Ponzi schemes that we've seen in this country, then that collapses. And people soon began getting a little panicked, and some just finally started asking for their money back. And he could pay some back for a little bit, but then he had a problem. Because like I said, without new people coming in and new fresh money coming in, Eventually, you can't pay the old ones. Eventually, when you've blown all the money on yourself that should have been used you know, to invest that they trusted you with, because again, here's that breach of trust, as I've talked about before, which is all too common in a white-collar crime. And soon, some begin to question his credentials. Like I said a little bit ago, you know, we didn't know as much back then as we do now to check them and that, but people kind of thought, you know, here's a guy that could barely add and, you know, wasn't known to be terribly bright, certainly wasn't a financial guru or a business genius. All of his business ventures up until this point had all been failures that he'd been involved in. Uh, I believe it was also reported he was briefly involved in like a fruit and vegetable business with his uh, wife's family, and that failed, as did many other that he had. So the only thing, unfortunately, he was really ever good at was a scam and a con. And it did finally catch up with him as he was unable to pay back investors, and his scheme finally did collapse. And the feds come knocking, as they often do, and he was brought up on 86 counts of mail fraud, which faced him, when they added everything up, basically the rest of his life in prison. So at the urging of his wife, he does take a plea, and he's sentenced to five years in federal prison, which, again, even then, that's a pretty good slap on the wrist when you consider the amount of people that he victimized, you know, would be up there probably with a Wolf of Wall Street, you know, Jordan Belfort type level today. I mean, I don't think what he did was probably on like Bernie Madoff's, you know, level that kind of stands off all on its own, but it certainly was very harmful to the people that he ripped off as these cases and these crimes always are. But he faced up to that many, pretty much the rest of his life in prison, but he only does about five years and then he gets released from federal prison. But state of Massachusetts has got some issues with him on some of the scams that he did. And uh, they bring up a lot of state charges on him, you know, about fraud and other types of scams that he was involved in. He did fight some of them, and honestly, you know, who knows if he would have tried to be a lawyer, he might have been a good one, but it was reported he actually represented himself in trial at one of these, and believe it or not, got himself acquitted, you know. If he might have uh, pursued that career, who knows? He was a very good con artist and, you know, had very persuasive skills. If he would have tried to use that as a Lawyer, who knows, might have made a really good one. You know, just because he wasn't good at business doesn't mean he, you know, couldn't have been good at law. But uh, unfortunately, he didn't try to uh, pursue that. All he tried to do was, you know, basically con people because unfortunately, that's about all he was really ever good at. But he ends up doing about seven years in prison again. And finally, he's released and faces deportation back to Italy. Um, he does fight it, 
but eventually he loses and he is deported back to Italy. His wife divorces him, you know, because even if they said he was allowed to stay, he was pretty much going to be in no position to support her or take care of her. So he's uh, he's sent back to Italy where it's reported basically he spent kind of his twilight years, you know, broken alone. Um, did read that he did try a few scams here and there, but none of them ever really caught on like he did before. And maybe he just lost his charm and charisma in old age and, you know, just wasn't able to pull it off like he was before. But that's the story that uh, of the Ponzi scheme. Now, at least he did, over the years, spend some time in prison for his crimes, which, you know, maybe not as much as he should have, but he did at least serve some. When some of the other cases we've talked about on here, people have committed even worse crimes than this and have not spent, you know, that long or any time at all in prison. You know, once in a while you'll get one like, again, like Madoff that, you know, gets justice what they deserve, but uh, it's very, very rare. And he did at least do that, and he did actually, you know, die penniless and broke and alone, where, again, some of the others don't have to meet that bad of a fate. You know, uh, Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street I've talked about here, he's gotten out of prison and touring around Australia and the rest of the world like a rock star and, you know, giving uh, seminars and book deals and, you know, television appearances and, you know, just uh, treated like a star. He's doing endorsement deals for streaming services and, you know, this is one of the biggest con artists of our time. And, you know, as I've pointed out, to my knowledge, has not paid restitution to his victims, which was a condition of his uh, parole and release. But uh, nonetheless, he's, to my knowledge, walking the streets a free man tonight in Australia or wherever he's at. But, uh, you know, he's not been brought to justice on that. And, you know, he's probably still living very well financially, you know, much better than the average person. And But uh, that wasn't the case there. Whatever Ponzi made, was likely confiscated by the government when he was found guilty and you know he ended up dying broken alone when he returned to Italy but you know he did get some good years out of the scam and as I said you know lived very high up on the hog for a while so that's a brief synopsis there of the guy that's actually behind that so when you do hear a term about a Ponzi scheme no that is the guy who actually inspired that you know and and brought it down you know to a really good science at that time now again like i said i don't think he's the one that actually came up with that like i mentioned a guy he worked for in canada you know at the bank that had some shady land deals that were using kind of a similar principle but still you know he is the one that brought it down to a science and that's often the case you know that's what i said about uh to some of the classes i teach in my criminal justice classes that i teach to my students to say, you know, Ray Kroc did not invent the hamburger, but let's face it, he certainly found a really good system to sell them. And that's the case with, uh, with Mr. Uh, Ponzi. He did come up with a system that, again, as long as you got new people willing to come in and plop their money down, you can keep the scam going. And, uh, you know, and unfortunately, just like all the times we see before, when it does collapse, and it's oftentimes too late for the people to recover and, and get any kind of justice when it's done. But that's that's what uh, unfortunately happens far too many times. And I'm sure it happened here. Most of the people that were ripped off were probably never the same and never recovered like they were before. But, you know, at least he did get some form of justice. So going to look forward to doing the next uh, episode coming up. We're going to do one on the... Uh, underground reverse railroad that was done here in southern illinois to help finance john crenshaw's greedy salt mine empire especially those of you that are from the southern illinois and the midwest and southern areas here i think you'll enjoy this story some of you might even be familiar with it so looking forward to bringing that with you um like i always say like us on facebook follow us on there 
Uh, you can donate on the Anchor page if you like our show. We always take donations, but as I say, we're always much more appreciative of you tuning in and listening to us. Um, you know, we follow us too on Facebook. We're still involved in the dog fostering business. In fact, I just found out today one of the little foster pups that we have here now uh, is being adopted. She's going to be leaving soon for her new home. And as I always say, folks, please uh, shop your local pet shelters. Don't support the backyard breeders or anything like that. Your next best friend's waiting for you right in the uh, local shelter. So, as always, folks, thanks for having you. Thanks for having you on here. Always enjoyed having you aboard. And we look forward to having you again on White Collar Crimes.